this is this is a project that I've just been uh, well I've actually been working on for a while but it's only starting to come together in terms of the questions that are framing this second book that I'm working on that I've tentatively entitled uh, making Islam modern so before I get into the meat of the paper I just want to kind of give you the overview of where I see this book and then where I see this actual argument and the piece that I'll be discussing today fitting in. Um, so, the, I, so the subject of the book is Islamic modernism. And so how I understand that is this is a movement that, um, that and, and geographically this happens, um, you know, in, it, it, it coincides with the dissolution of the Ottoman, Mughal, and Safavid empires, and the consolidation of British, French rule in India, the Middle East, and North Africa. And the period I'm thinking about is 1840 to 1940. And the people I'm thinking about are the, a group of Muslim intellectuals and political thinkers that are writing in these, that are writing in, in, in these regions that I just laid out. And they're writing in a particular way. That is, they're trying to reconcile um, uh, Islam in the modern period with the values of secular, uh, supposedly secular, Western modernity. And so these intellectuals and political thinkers are coming out of various different contexts. So Egypt, um, Iran, and, uh, and India are the areas that I'm looking at. Um, and they're writing about Islam, and this is what I'm interested in, how they are writing about Islam in a new way, and how this new this Islam, this modern Islam, is written about in response to and in relation to European conceptions of religion, especially Christianity. So what I argue is that these conversations are initiated by a group of intellectuals, and who are they? Jamal al-Din Afghani, um, Mohammed Abdu and Mohammed Abdu's student Rashid Rida in India, Sayyid Ahmed Khan, Mohammed Iqbal, and Molana Ala Maududi are the group of people that I'm working on. But there are a lot more, and so these are. <clears throat> and what I guess my argument here is that even though they're writing in different contexts, in many ways their responses were very uniform, tied together by one main concern, how Islam can become modern and defining Islam in terms that are, um, that are compatible with, Christian, um, with, with Christianity and the values of Christian Europe. So how, what are some of the features of this Islam? Um, unity is one of them. And um, this is an idea that, that many of them work with, is Tawheed, the idea of Quranic unity. But Quranic unity is redefined for these modernists. And for them, Tawheed becomes understood not so much as the Quranic idea of God's unity, but social and political unity. That is, the new, this new Islam is defined in terms that are, that are about cohesion of the community. So if, what does cohesion mean? It means that we have that the community needs to be understood as uniform and that there can't be deviance, right? And in, so in their definition making, this new Islam is about creating a boundary also. And so I'm interested in those boundaries that are getting created, and I'm interested in who falls outside of those boundaries. Who is considered in, who is considered out, 
And I, tentatively, I would say that these issues that they define Islam through, so the way in which Muslims, uh, Islam is unified through this idea of community, how um, there are correct pra practices, right and wrong practices, and religious authority. That's a very big question for me. Who gets to decide? Um, who, who, uh, who gets to decide what it means to be Muslim in this period? And um, there's a lot of criticism of religious authority, and in particular, they have criticisms of each other. Okay, and so this is what I'm going to be looking at. Today is one particular, the first figure, um, and in many ways he's considered the founder and um, the earliest of these modernists. Jamal al-Din Afghani, that dates 1838 to 1897, was in fact one of the most well-known of this group. So he was a political activist, an agitator, an orator, a teacher, and a journalist who traveled and spread his ideas throughout the Middle East, South Asia, and Europe in the late 19th century. He was born and educated in Iran, traveled to India in his early teens, was involved in political circles in Afghanistan, taught in Istanbul, wrote, taught, and was politically active in Egypt, India, Paris, and London. In this paper, I'll be discussing the works he composed during his two-year stay in Hyderabad, 1879 to 1881. And I will be focusing on one particular piece he wrote at this time, entitled The Truth About the Necheri Sect and an Explanation of the Necheris. So a brief comment about this term, Necheri. It is made up. The closest definition is naturalist. But that's not really what it means when he's using the term. It's a neologism, and it's a derogatory term that he uses to describe various groups of people whom he claims de deny God. These are the Greek cynics, the Zoroastrians, Ismailis, and Baha'is. But the target group of this piece are the target, and the primary reference is Sayyid Ahmed Khan, the earliest and most well-known of Muslim modernist reformers and his followers. So this accusation, Necheri, gets applied to all of these different groups, but I'm interested in looking at the ways in which he takes it up against Sayyid Ahmed Khan. So this piece, uh, which is called The Truth About the Necheri Sect, it later became translated, they dropped that clunky title, and um, it became renamed The Refutation of the Materialists. Okay, So that's what I'm going to be looking at today, The Refutation of the Materialists, as well as two other pieces entitled The Materialists in India, and commentary on the commentator. These are all pieces directed against Sayyid Ahmed Khan. So I'll be looking at these to figure out why he felt the need to malign him and his malign Sayyid Ahmed Khan and his followers. So I'm not the first scholar to try to reflect on this question. The Middle East historian Albert Hurani has made the point that Afghani thought, actually thought that Sayyid Ahmed Khan was a naturalist and denied the existence of any, or, any divine order, and that al-Afghani's refutation of the materialists was actually a defense of orthodoxy against heterodoxy. Okay, so the, for Hurani, the polemic is theological. According to another prominent historian, Nikki Keddy, who's in fact done the most systematic study of the history and biography of Al Afghani, whom I'll be drawing, whose work I'll be drawing on in this paper, she, um, her argument is that uh, the motivation was political, namely that Al Afghani's rhetoric was 
a cover for his political critique of Saeed Ahmed Khan as someone who was pro-British. So the way she sees it is the sort of anti-British versus pro-British. Um, Afghani being um, anti-British and Saeed Ahmed Khan being pro-British. What I wish to show is that Afghani wanted to, my argument is that Afghani wanted to upstage Saeed Ahmed Khan because of the latter's success and does so by claiming the role of Messiah. In order to make this claim, however, Afghani ironically draws on the ideas, beliefs, and practices of the same groups he appears to be condemning in the Necheri piece. So, okay, so there's going to be several steps involved in this paper. So let me just lay out the format. The format is, first I'm going to give you some background on Afghani. I'm going to introduce the Necheri piece, what it's about, with particular attention to what groups he's focused on. Um, then, and then I'll turn to selections from some of, other, some of his other writings during the period to show how he believed that Muslims, and Muslims, Muslim Indians in particular, were in need of a Mahdi or a Messiah. From there, I will show how his desire was not altogether out of the realm of possibility, as he managed to achieve a measure, measure of success with charismatic leadership during his stay in Egypt. I will then go back to the period in Egypt where he to describe what institutions and ideas he, he drew from, in particular the language of Ismailism and early Baha'i ideas, to establish his religious authority there. So I want to show how those same ideas, that these are the same ideas that he denounces in the Necheri piece. Okay, then I'm going to offer some basic conclusions, which I'm still working out, so I would um, appreciate any kind of feedback on that front. Okay, background. So Afghani was born in, As in Asadabad, Iran, attended school in Qazvin and later Tehran, where he was trained in traditional Shi'i Islamic education, as well as Islamic philosophy and mysticism. So there's quite a bit in Afghani's writings that attest to the religious and political climate of Shi'ism, as well as Messianic Babism that informed his early thought. We'll come to this later. So, as an overview of his travels, he so born and raised in Iran, kind of had early formation. He traveled to India for a few when he was 18 years old. It's kind of difficult to reconstruct from the sources why he went and how long he traveled for. Um, but that's kind of the period when he was first exposed to the British. Um, as Nikki Keddy says, witnessing first time the hands, the ways in which the British displaced the old Muslim ruling elite. This was also his first exposure to Western forms of learning that came to shape his positions on, his import, on the importance of science and civilizational progress, two big things he was really focused on. After his first trip to India, he made a short trip to Mecca and then traveled to Afghanistan in 1866. This is where he started his political career, where he attached himself to the new Amir Azam Khan in Kabul. And according to the British records, he worked very closely with the Amir and urged him to ally himself with the Russians and fight the British. After Azam Khan was defeated by his brother, Shir Ali, Afghani no longer had a position, and this new Amir was suspicious of him and had him exiled from Kandahar in 1868. From there, he traveled to Bombay, then Cairo, and then by 1869, he was in Istanbul. And in Istanbul, he started to align himself kind of loosely with some of the figures of the Tanzimat reforms and supported many of the reforms in the university. Uh, he was selected to give a, one, a speech at the opening of the new university at the time, and he um, was 
appointed the official of the, uh, an official in, of the Council of Education. But this is where he started his kind of, you know, started saying inflammatory things. Um, he gave a speech that, uh, that apparently caused him to be expelled from Istanbul. And instead of speaking about science and, and topics of modern industries, he began to speak about su supposed heretical ideas of Islamic philosophy and prophecy, these ideas that, were, uh, that offended the Sunni westernizing reformers as well as the ulama. So he was forced to leave, and he ended up in Cairo, where he stayed, where he arrived on the invitation of Riyad Pasha, a prominent politician. Um, and he stayed from 1879 to, or 1871 to 1879. Most of his activities were in informal sectors, teaching and mentoring. And it was clear that people were drawn to Afghani, his students and students as well as intellectuals. Um, you know, he would have, he would be, he would be affiliated, he was affiliated with Al-Azhar, but he would also just kind of informally hang out in these coffee houses, and um, he got, he basically had a whole circle around him, and it was at this time Muhammad Abdu, uh, the educator and reformer, uh, uh, was drawn to him in, in, in his ideas. So, Afghani brought something very unusual to the setting, right? Um, Medieval Muslim philosophy, philosophy was something these intellectuals found compelling because in Egypt was going undergoing this massive political and social crisis, right, as a consequence of the changes with Egypt's dependence on the European bankers and capitalists. And so basically national senti nationalist sentiments were arising against, against Western domination and methods. And Afghani stepped in and encouraged his followers to set up newspapers and write about their political grievances. So, so he started this whole journalism um, life and uh, for the for the for the community in Egypt. But by 19, by 1878 and 1879, he started making incendiary speeches against the British, and de developed a reputation as a popular uh, leader and orator. And by 1879, the new Khedive of Tawfiq demanded that Afghani be expelled on the basis of his agitation. So, Egypt was really the period where he became much more of a political. Agitator, and so he. After he left Egypt, he came to India, and he traveled to Hyderabad via Bombay, and he stayed in Hyderabad for two years. And it was at this time that he wrote the truth about the Nichiri sect, uh, which later, as I said, was translated as the refutation of the materialists. So I'm going to call it the refutation from now on. So at the start of, ref of the refutation. Afghani presents a note from a mathematics instructor named Mohammed Vasil, who teaches at a local madrasa in Hyderabad. And this note is um, written to Afghani that he writes to inquire about the identity of the Necheris. He says, this is from this um, mathematics instructor. These days, the sound Necher, Necher reaches us from all over India, the western, northern states, Punjab, Bengal, Sindh, and Hyderabad, and the Deccan. Some men called Necheris are to be found in every city and town. It seems like this group is constantly growing, especially among the Muslims. I have asked many of this group, what is the truth of, about Necher, and when did the school appear? Is the Necheri a group trying to reform civilization by this new policy, or do they have a different aim? How might one compare its total effects on civilization? Is this an ancient sect? Why has it not spread in the world until now? If it is recent, what are the effects will result from its existence? 
Not one of these people have given a decisive or adequate answer to my questions. Therefore, I pray your honor, explain for me in details the truth about Nietzscher and Nietzscheria. Question. So the refutation is an allegedly an answer to this query. So throughout the piece, he uses naturalist and materialist interchangeably. Okay? So the opening sections, he describes the first materialists. They are one of two groups of Greek philosophers in the third and fourth centuries. So the one group is the Nietzscheri, and the second group being the theists. All right, so two groups. So whereas the theists believe in a creator, and the materialists believe in that nothing exists but matter. So these two opposing groups set the terms for the discussion. To put it starkly, there are those into, who follow in the theist category, who follow religion on the one hand, and those who deny God, the Nietzscheris, on the other hand. So after setting up this division, he turned to a discussion of religion. Okay, so I'm going to, but I'm, the, the religion discussion is not super interesting. And also there's really nothing very, uh, there, it, there's a lot of abstract ideas. Okay, so the subject of religion, as I say in my argument, is op operates at the level of, of, of abstraction. What do I mean? He doesn't talk about Islam at all. He talks about certain ideas like individual, individuality, nobility, community, pride. But the whole discussion about religion, these abstractions, is that he is focused on progress, right? How the Muslim community can progress, right? Progress in the community is the most important thing. He writes, progress of nations, excuse me, peoples in the sciences, knowledge, honor, glory, greatness, riches, and wealth. That is the most important, more impor most important thing. Progress of nations, progress of people, okay? So... Unlike his discussion on religion, the subject of Nietzscheris has very specific examples, very specific historical examples. The first group of Nietzscheris were the cynics, who over time, quote, influenced the souls and minds of the Greeks, brought intellects to the point of stupidity, wisdom became sluggish, and manners became corrupt. Those are the cynics. Among the Persians, there was the Nietzscheri Mazdak, Right, the, who is the 6th century Zoroastrian reformer who became prominent under Sasanian rule, who Afghani claims um, replaced single-handedly laws, norms, customs established by men with the law of nature. So the nature is now a law that, quote, established the right of sharing food, drink, and women and made it incumbent on everyone to obtain his rights in property and women in whatever way he can in accordance with the sacred law of nature. So basically, this group, the Zoroastrians, were communists, okay? And the cynics, they were the, just the ones who became, made, you know, made people dumb. Um, so, okay, so so far it's pretty clear that this is not any one particular group. It's not any recognized, you know, school of thought within Islam. It's simply a pejorative designation to the groups that, and groups that are unrelated historically or theologically. But the interesting thing is that this Nietzscheri idea, it, it functions like a dormant virus that keeps recurring no matter how much effort is made to destroy it. So, for example, Afghani explains, even though, Anushir, even though Mazdak was killed, and so was his followers, they were unable to get rid of the teachings. This time, the Nietzscheri resurfaced in the fourth, fourth century in the guise of the Bataniya. He writes, the superiority and greatness of this noble community remained until the fourth century. 
The Necheris or naturalists appeared in Egypt under the name of the Bataniya and knowers of the hidden. They spread their program to all sides and corners of the Muslim world, especially Iran. So now these are these these Bataniya Necheris are spreading um, spreading their ideas. Now this didn't happen before. This is what's new about the Necheri Bataniya is that that first. They create doubt in the Muslims about their beliefs. After the establishment of doubt in their hearts, take an oath and promise to the eyes, they promise to the eyes of the perfect guide. Okay. So what distinguishes this group of Necheri is that they are completely um, devoted to this leader, this perfect, this perfect guide. Um, and this is actually a shared feature with the with the Baha'is, whom he um, describes as connect, as also Nichiri in the same piece, um, when he says that uh, the, the, the Babis uh, are the, quote, apprentices of those same Nichiris of Alamut. Okay, so there's a continuation of, of, of this. Okay, so this is who we have so far, is the Nichiris, all of these different groups. So that's the refutation in terms of outlining who the Nichiris are. Now I'm going to move to this next piece, the materialists in India, which focus specifically on Sayyid Ahmed Khan. Okay, so he begins by saying, how did Sayyid Ahmed Khan develop a Nichiri position? Well, Afghani explains, he first defended the Torah and gospel, second, he declared himself a Christian. And finally, Syed Ahmed Khan decided to take, quote, another road in order to serve his English masters by sowing division among the Muslims and scattering their unity, unquote. And just the full kind of, sorry, extension of that. This is Syed Ahmed Khan. This is uh, Afghani and Syed Ahmed Khan. He appeared in the guise of the naturalists and proclaimed that nothing exists but blind nature and began to seduce the sons of the rich, who were frivolous young men, some of them inclined toward him, escaping from the bonds of law of Islam and pursuing bestial passions. His doctrine pleased the English rulers, and they saw in it the best means to corrupt the hearts of the Muslims. They began to support him, to honor him, and to help him build a college in Aligarh called Mohammedan College. So although Afghani frames his criticism of Sayyid Ahmed Khan and his followers in theological terms of religious deviance, it's apparent that the charge is a political one rather than religious, um, as consistent with his logic of the earlier Nichiri sect. He exposes him, right? He's trying to expose Sayyid Ahmed Khan as a godless collaborator and traitor to his religion. And for this reason, he's basically a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? So the, the Nichiri accusation, in my view, is a way, is something which is about us, trying to usurp religious authority. Plus, much of what Afghani says about Sayyid Ahmed Khan is fabrication, and, or at least, at the very least, distortion, right? So Sayyid Ahmed Khan never disavowed Islam or religion. And in fact, it is well known that he felt the need to respond to the aggressive commentaries of Christian missionaries as well as British civil servants, such as William Muir. And his writings were very more primarily apologetic, right? Defending Islam and, and Muhammad. He also wrote on, on he wrote a, Quran, a, a commentary on the Quran. And he was somebody who really believed that there, I mean, he had written about this problem of nature, this issue of nature, but for him, there was no distinction between the work of God and the word of God. And the law of nature is God's manifest covenant and his promise of reward and retribution, right? So those two things were tied very closely. So, so, so this, is a, this is a complete distortion of Sayyid Ahmed Khan, right? So I'm, so I'm trying to understand why, why he's doing this. Well, first, let's step back for a second and think about both of these figures. How, do we, how, how are they similar and how are they different? Well, 
in studies of modern Islam, they're both considered modernists, right? They, they're, they, they, they're, they're both figures who sought ways to make Islam compatible with the values of Western modernity. But clearly, these two figures came from very different backgrounds. Zayed Ahmed Khan was shaped by and con concerned with the specific territory and life of Indian Muslims, and Afghani was completely disconnected from his homeland and spent his time as an itinerant teacher and, and uh, political agitator. And, whereas, and Sayyid Ahmed Khan was someone who studied and educated himself within recognizable fields of theology and mysticism and had you know, lineage, right, um, so to speak, pedigree. But Afghani didn't really have any of those things. Um, Afghani was his 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 um, his position was really achieved through his his work as a charismatic teacher and speaker. So in this next section, and I don't think it's probably very necessary to go into the details here. Um, I'm so I'm first outlining how they're different, but now I actually in this next section I talked about how they're actually very similar, and I take these ideas of science education, and, and most importantly, progress. And I look at two speeches. One is um, Afghani's lecture on learning and teaching, as well as his answer to Renan, which he writes, um, in which he talks about the importance of science and the importance of, um, and, and how, it's, how it's very important, as well as education. And, and this is also the case with Syed Ahmed Khan. And I look at you know, what, a couple of his speeches and, and draw these parallels to say, look, they're actually concerned with these same issues. And they sort of repeat you know, much of the same language. Um, so uh, just one second. So despite this, the fact that they are concerned with these same questions, how What's the big question they're interested in? They're interested in civilizational progress, right? How is Islam going to be strong again, right? They, how, how, is it going to, um, how is it going to be the great civilization that it once was? And they both have similar answers, that it was once a great civilization. It can be a great civilization. We just got to do X, Y, and Z. We have to educate the people. We have to, per we have to emphasize science. And that way, we can progress, OK? But there's a difference. And OK, so education, very important. And so I'm just going to start with um, Afghani in, in, his, um, in the third piece that I'm talking about here. It's called Commentary on the Commentator. And the commentator is Sayyid Abdul Khan. And he's making a reference to the fact that he's a commentator of the Quran. OK, so he's giving his own commentary on the commentator. OK, so in the commentary of the commentator, Afghani says, education, if it is good, produces perfection from imperfection, nobility from baseness. See, all of these like empty ideas are all, he's repeating them. Okay. When this is understood, one must realize that if a people receive good education, all of its classes and ranks in accord with the natural, uh, all of its, uh, Sorry, if people receive a good education, all of its classes and ranks will flourish simultaneously and will progress. Okay. In that same piece, there is no doubt, quote, there is no doubt in the present age, distress, misfortune, weakness, besiege all classes of Muslims from every side. Therefore, every Muslim keeps his eyes and ears in expectation to the east, west, north, and south to see from what corner of the earth the sage 
and the renewer will appear and will reform the minds and souls of Muslims, repel the unforeseen corruption, and educate them with virtuous education. Perhaps through that good education, they may return to their hopeful, to their former joyful condition, right? The sage and the renewer. Again, in that same piece. I, more than others, expect that the minds and soul of the Muslims will very soon be enlightened by, and rectified by the wisdom of a stage. Okay, and then he goes on to talk about all the things that a sage can do to help Muslims get back their glory. Okay, so here he doesn't say it specifically, but um, I think he sees himself as the sage. Um, and in fact, I propose that Afghani had messianic aspirations. And the reason why is that this is something that's going on in the world around him. To serve as the Messiah or the Mahdi for the people was happening during his lifetime and around this period with the Sudanese Mahdi. In 1881, Mohammed Ahmed claimed to be the Mahdi of Sudan. He led a successful revolt against the Khedive and the British, and after India, uh, and the British, sorry. So, so this is, so, so the Sudanese Mahdi is, um, is, ha is active in 1881. This is, in 1882, Afghani goes to Paris and London. So this is after the Hyderabad stint, right? And there, he writes an article in a French newspaper um, entitled Le Mardi, okay, where he discusses this idea of the Mardi. And this article that he writes in this French newspaper, he writes about the idea of the, idea of the Mardi, he writes about Mardis in history, various Mardis, and the Sudanese Mardi. So he talks about a lot of different things. Um, and he describes Mahdist movements that have been successful in Islamic history. But he says that despite these successes, none of these earlier Mahdis were the unique Mahdi, as he explains in the following passage. In a word, under this name, how many Muslims have accomplished this brilliant and has have accomplished brilliant and considerable acts? And have they not brought about very serious change in the world of believers? In brief, however diverse these may be from the point of view of form, it is no less true that every Muslim awaits a Mahdi, ready to follow him and to sacrifice his life to him, along with all he possesses. The Indian Muslims especially, given the infinite sufferings and cruel torments they endure under English domination, are those who await him with the most patience. 1883. So why would he think that he would be able to acquire such a role? This is a question as Mahdi, or let's say sage, political leader, whoever that is, that renewer, right? Well, because I actually contend that the groundwork for, um, that he kind of was able to, basically he was kind of able to do this semi-successfully at, at a previous point in Egypt, actually. So while he was in Egypt, as I said, he was known to spend time with his students and with his disciples um, in coffee houses and, and uh, outside of the university. But that wasn't it. There was also formal institutional spaces. And one in particular, or several in particular, were the lodges of the Freemasons, where he was known to spend time with, um, with, a, with a community of like-minded individuals. 
So when Afghani first arrived in 1871, he was supported by a government pension, and he actually taught in Al-Azhar. But soon, he was no longer welcome there. And so this was a period, again, of all of these changes. And in... in so what happened was he, he lost whatever position he had on his pension, and he moved into the Freemason circles. Okay. So whereas Freemasonry in, in Europe was focused pretty much on promotion of philanthropy and, brother, and cultivating brotherhood, in Egypt it was the space, it was the organization that, who, that attracted those who were interested in subverting the authority of the Khedive Ismail. Afghani and others were leading personalities of this mission. And so his first contact was in 1875 when he requested admission into one of the Masonic centers. And basically, the records show from like 1870, the rest of the time that he was in Egypt, he belonged to several Masonic lodges, the National Grand Lodge, the East Star Lodge, um, and he maintained ties to multiple lodges. Okay, what were these spaces? Why are they relevant to this argument that I'm making? Well... The Freemason societies were places due to their secret society structure where both um, scholars, Nikki Kedi again, and another um, scholar of Afghani and Abdu, Ali uh, Kaduri, uh, argue that these are places where they were able to cu uh, cultivate these heterodox ideas and practices. Um, and so they were, site, they were also sites of secret initiations, esoteric discussions about religion and philosophy, but they were also anti-political, anti um, you know, they were also kind of sites of, of, of activism, of political activism. But here's the interesting part. In 1875, he writes, uh, Afghani describes himself in an application to one of his lodges um, as a teacher of the philosophical sciences and addresses the Masons as Ikhwan al-Safa wa Khulun al-Wafa, the sincere brethren, brethren and faith, faithful companions. Okay. So the brethren that he's talking about, this is, an, this is a direct allusion and reference to a famous Ismaili treatise, right, known as Rasal Ikhwan, Ikhwan al-Safa, which is an early medieval encyclopedia composed by a group known as the Ikhwan, or the brethren, sometime, sometime between the 9th and 10th centuries. So the Brethren of Purity were a group of thinkers working for the Fatimid Dawah, right? At the, at, that, that's the original. But this, this reference itself became a reference to this sort of secret organization, right? And so this was one space in which he was invoking those ideas. This is part of my argument, one way in which he was doing it. And in fact, he actually was successful in... in um, in drawing, um, uh, convincing people of his own authority, of his, of his charismatic authority in the Freemason Lodge. So this is, in fact, where he initiated Muhammad Abdu. Okay? Um, he initiated Muhammad Abdu into Freemason culture, too, and, um, and he became also part, he became part, uh, a participant in, 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 this, in this world also. So this is what I, I guess my argument is that the lodges were sites of just not just political activism, but also where this sort of religious charismatic authority gets activated, right? Um, Abdu, Muhammad Abdu, Who's, which ironically in these accounts of modernism describe him as somebody who's like this legal reformer and very Sunni and all of these kinds of things, you know, very focused on like the reform of Egypt. Um, here you see in, in, in this exchange, so I have some of this material that's um, from uh, about... Uh, 
Abdu's initiation into the Freemasons and his relationship to Afghani, he says, right, that it was basically Afghani who initiated into this world, but also he, it was Afghani that led him on this path. He says, Afghan, Abdu says here, while I found myself in this state of disorientation, the arrival of the perfect sage of truth personified, our venerated master Sayyid al-Jamil al-Din Afghani, who does not cease to garner the fruits of science, made the sun of truths rise for us, which illuminated the most complicated problems. Right? Um, and there are all these passages there's in, his, in his treatises about, about Afghani. And this sort of stuff really um, was troubling to Abdu's um, successors, especially Rashid Ridha, where, um, this become, because where he takes a very conservative turn with his modernism. And Ridha has no time for this kind of relationship that, that uh, Abdu had and, and actually writes it out in the biography. Um, Okay, so this is one place where I'm saying he's cultivated this role as perfect sage and truth personified. But I think another was, um, another kind of, I guess, idiom would be the Baha'i tradition. And I think I said at the beginning, and um, I'm going to conclude in the next five or ten minutes, five minutes here, um, that he grew up in this environment of Twelver Shiism in Iran. And... Um, <clears throat> And that, that, that's kind of what he had, that, that's what was around him. And in fact, he was, um, this is not my information, this is something that uh, you know, Nikki Keddy has stated in her biography, that he was very much influenced by the early Babi thought. This is the Shaky School, which was founded in the late 18th century. And the ideas that spread throughout the Shi'i areas of Ottoman, Iraq, and Iran that was a kind of seen as this combination of rationalist philosophy and mysticism, and it had a very strong messianic tension. Um, and apparently in the 1860s, al-Afghani used to carry around with him a shaky treatise that, um, that of one of his, of, of the founder of, one, of shaky thought, Sheikh Ahmed Esai, whom some 12-er Shia, uh, some 12-er Mujahids uh, had excommunicated. And these texts were really important to him. So one idea in particular that's of, of, that he, he, he seemed to have been influenced by was this, this notion, the shaky notion of a fourth pillar, this idea that there will always be in the world a perfect Shi'i who can guide men in right ideas and action during the absence of the 12th Imam. So whereas the Twelvers believed that in the absence of the Twelfth Imam, the Mujahid served as the fallible guides, Sheikhis believed that in each epoch had its own guide that was more perfect and exalted than the Mujahid. So, so that was one element, right, this idea of a perfect guide, perfect leader. And then, as I said, the, this Iqan al-Safa, the parallels are kind of interesting there because of the, the, the underground nature of both, you know, that he's invoking um, of, of the ideas of secrecy and, and, um, and the ideas of learning and getting inducted into philosophy while also being politically active um, was something that he was tapping into. So I'm just kind of putting the, that out there and I'll kind of just conclude here and say, try to come full circle and say, well, the refutation has been understood as a defense of orthodoxy, um, right? And and it's not just not just Hurani, but honestly, it, it, you know, the way Al Afghani is kind of all the accounts of him is um, is to say, even Nikki Keddy will say that he took a sort of orthodox turn late in his life. This is considered the the defense of Islam period, right? So there is this idea that he actually is invested in religion in some way. Um, 
And so that, there's that orthodox argument, but I think what I would want to convey is that there's really no mention of religion or of the Quran, let alone any theological or doctrinal subjects. And second, the refutation has been read through the lens of politics, right? Said Ahmed Khan is pro-British and Afghani is anti-British. And we know that all Afghani's Brit agitation was anti-British in Egypt. But what I wanted to show, and I guess I didn't really pull that out in, the, in, in my reading here in the interest of time, but their, their thoughts were very similar. They were both very much shaped by um, you know, European ideas of enlightenment, so ideas of progress and civilization and science and education. And so, and, and in fact, education was the most important thing for both of them, the education of the masses. That's the way Islam is going to be great again. But the difference is that, of course, that for Afghani, this education necessitated a leader, a sage, a mahdi, whatever, to guide the people, right? So I guess I'm proposing that he wrote these pieces because he saw in Sayyid Ahmed Khan competition, a leader who was in fact successful in guiding Indian Muslims along these modernist lines. Um, Sayyid Ahmed Khan was an elite, an Indian Muslim elite with pedigree and with institutions such as Aligarh. Al Afghani didn't have anything like that, right, because of his itinerant life, but he did have, what he did have was his charisma and he was, I'm trying to make the argument, successful in disseminating his ideas through charismatic leadership in Egypt, right? So he was able to cultivate disciples, and there is a legacy of Afghani um, there. And he did it through the Freemason networks and institutions. He also had this personal resource of his formations, his ideas, his babis and shaky ideas and Ismaili ideas that he was working with to do that and tap into. Um, and I guess, you know, the point here is to say, well, he wasn't able to do that in India. And that's kind of the question, sort of a question that I'm, 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 I'm still wrestling with. But I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, the nature of the space. It was, it, it was, it, you know, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. It just, it wasn't open enough for that. And it, it, it you know, there wasn't that kind of, it didn't have those, those networks weren't available in the same way. So, um, and in terms of like final, final thoughts here, um, again, I don't have an airtight ending or conclusion, but I guess what I want to say is that, to repeat what I said at the beginning, is this project is about modernism, and it's about rethinking the ways in which Islamic modernism has been discussed, which is to say that, you know, there have been these founding figures, and I'm interested in all these founding figures, right? Um, but we have to think about what they're doing. They're not just defining Islam, they're creating outsiders. And they are, um, they're in competition with another, is what, I, is what I think. There's this kind of issue of rivalry that's also at the center of the modernist project because it seems like power is up for grabs in some ways. And, um, and, and they're kind of all fighting, all these guys, um, trying to assert their <clears throat> religious and or their political authority, and they're doing it through through these particular um, religious idioms. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you.